Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, it's time for another bonus episode. And like you listening out there right now, Rebecca has no idea what this episode is going to be about at this particular moment. Nothing. I am in the dark on the edge of my seat. You told me just to go with it. And, you know, I'd like to think I'm a pretty game kind of gal. So here we are. In fairness to both of us, I did give you the option to know. I said, do you really want to know or can you come in or would you like to come in blind? I thought it would be more fun to come in blind. There's no pre-work needed for this. So um, just know that she had the opportunity to pull the chute while jumping out of the plane, but decided to jump out of the plane and just hope (laughs) uh, the chute opens in the middle. Okay, so here's what we're going to do today. I've got a list of, well, I have more than we're going to get to, of half-baked ideas Mm. about books and reading. Okay. And I'm going to pitch them to you, and you're going to tell me if they're baked, if they're going to give someone food poisoning. Can I put it, can I put it out on the shelf? Like, where what are do you we think on the these? scale of like E. coli risk where, to Corona that's sensation? Right. Okay. Yeah. Is it going to be a sensation or did you need to throw this one right in the bin? Um, and I know from putting stuff in the bin, having tried to do some baking with my kids, which we've enjoyed. The variety of my failure at baking is really surprising. It's a, a full spectrum failure um, possibility for me with baking. I'll see if I can do better today. But before we do that, let's take a break for a sponsor because I, I got a lot of bad ideas to throw at Rebecca. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out the Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, here we go. These are in no particular order, though I have to say I think this is maybe... Okay, I think this is maybe the most fully baked idea. And if you think it's bad, we're in for a long episode. So here we go. This is bold to come out with what you think is maybe the best one. Well, I just want to set expectations that they're not going to get better from me. <laughs> I would have started like right you're in hoping the that I'm building list. towards a crescendo. Yeah. No, I, I'm starting with it. So I was walking by, uh, down um, in Portland uh, the other day um, on Hawthorne Street here in Southeast Portland, and there's a Powell's 
the, mm-hmm. the second biggest pals in Portland, that's kind of kitty corner from the Baghdad Theater, which is an old movie house that McMinimums restored. And there's one screen, and it's a great old movie theater. It's my favorite place to see a movie. And I noticed that Joker was playing. It's been a big hit. And then in the window of Powell's, there was, I think, one or two like Batman-related comics saying, if you've seen Joker, see the thing. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize so many adaptations happen, and so many people go out and buy books based on a movie being out. Why not have a kiosk in the movie theater where you can buy books related to the movie you you've just go to see? What do you think of that idea? This is a good idea. Um, okay, I'm so glad. Oh, I was holding <laughs> on for dear life. Okay, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think it's interesting because it would be primarily selling books to people after the movie. So it hinges on the movie being good enough that you're curious about the source material, which like it also depends on how big of a book nerd you are, right? Because you could go see a movie based on a book. And if the movie is bad, you might still be like, but I wonder about the book. <laughs> um, right. If it's great, you might also wonder about the book. And now I'm thinking like, why hasn't Fandango partnered with someone to do ebook distribution? Like we've seen so many random publisher mm-hmm. initiatives to do ebook bundling. Like how come, you know, PRH hasn't partnered up with Fandango for like, you just bought tickets to this movie based on a book we published. Here you go. Do you want to buy the ebook? Um, I like this. I don't know how profitable yeah. it would be, but I like it as an experiment. Mm. I want. I would like to find out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it led to a couple other questions. These aren't ideas, the questions I had about it. Do we know if your book gets made into a movie, what kind of sales spike you see? Because we see like the movie tie-in covers which most book nerds, and I'll throw myself into this particular book nerd bucket, don't particularly like. Like, it's hard to find a person who's like considers themselves a book person that prefers the movie tie-in version of a book. You know, there there's edge cases, of course, but in general, that's a thing for people who don't normally read books. I think. Mm-hmm. But what do we expect about a book? Like, did Goldfinch? Oh, Goldfinch is a terrible example because it's one of the biggest bombs on the box office of right. all time. But take your your replacement value adaptation, right? <clears throat> yeah. What kind of a sales spike really happens? Because I guess both of our sense that this might be an interesting idea presupposes that there is a a concordant sales spike. I think that it's really hard to know because especially now, often the adaptations are coming out in theaters or hitting Netflix or TV or whatever at the same time that like the paperback is out. And it's impossible to disentangle what the paperback sales would have looked like without the adaptation from what they look like with it. Um, I think that the fault in our stars might be a case study here Mm. where there was a gap between the books, like the book by itself having a big surge in popularity. And then when the movie came out, we saw it come back onto the bestseller lists. Um, I will have to double check my timing. But since I had no prep for this podcast, I'm just talking. No, that's why, because we're just going. Yeah, I think that that might be a case or like um, Crazy Rich Asians, I'm pretty sure was in like it Mm. was still doing its paperback surge, at least for like the series had been completed. All three of the books were out in paperback when the first movie came out. So also very tough to take apart. Um, But some something like this would be just interesting data to have or even like. In the specific example you're giving, if the theater worked with Powell's and it was like, take your Joker movie ticket to Powell's to get $10 off any Batman comic, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing would be really interesting, too. The Craziest Asians is the best example because I I couldn't think of one myself. It seemed like the best use case for this is like Crazy Rich Asians where the next couple books in the series are out. Did you like the movie? You can find out what happens. Here are the books right here. Yeah. Come buy them. That's a really great case because the books are all great and the movie is great and you just get much more in the book. So like you think you could sell people the first book still and be like, you've seen the movie, but you didn't get the whole story. Read all three books now is a good one. Like Gone Girl would be a terrible example because Gone Girl was still super popular and was selling like gangbusters when the movie came out and it (laughs) had been selling like gangbusters for years. So like, who knows? Um, Mm hmm. Yeah, it's an it's an int- I like this idea, Jeff. This one's this is this is okay, a solid thanks. start. I'm but now I'm nervous about what the what the one. downhill looks like. Well, some of them are more fun than anything, <laughs> but um, a couple of follow up notes on this. I also was thinking too. So a lot of the adaptations are happening on TV. You could also sell the the book versions of what people are watching mm-hmm. at home, right? The Irishman is coming out based on the book. Um, 
uh, I Heard You Paint Houses, which I, I really liked. Um, it's a n- nonfiction book. And you could have, you know, it doesn't have to be just movies in the theaters right now. I'm wondering if you could have kind of a little suite, which also got me thinking, I was in Target the other day, and they have a whole, like, geek corner of, like, their Stranger Things merch, and I feel like there should be a mm-hmm. gift shop in movie theaters where you could buy the t-shirts, and you could buy the the Bob Funko bobblehead dolls, yeah. and you can get your whatever, and books could be a part of that. So I actually went from, why don't they have the books, to, boy, it seems like there's a merch opportunity in movie theaters. You've yeah. got people... I would presume it's a pretty good demographic. People who spend money on movies, they'll go out. They're in a buying mood. I just spent $9 on popcorn. 15 bucks for a paperback doesn't seem that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like HBO had the Olive Kitteridge okay. series. They could have done something to sell the book, and now there's, what is it, Olive Again um, is coming out, so they could have followed yes. up with that. They could bring back the series to On Demand. I'm not sure if it's currently available there or not, um, and use it as a marketing tie-in mm-hmm. Um We just saw, well, I'm going to talk about it on the main show recording tomorrow, that HBO Max, the new HBO like digital subscription platform, is getting Station Eleven and Mackenzie Davis is starring. So like there's, you know, buy your Station Eleven paperback and some other weird survival thing, maybe some Shakespeare because they talk about Shakespeare a lot. And they're like, yeah, why? Yeah. Why doesn't HBO have a merch section that includes the books that their shows are based on? And why don't movie theaters have gift shops? (laughs) That's the best possible compliment you can give on this show, Rebecca. Why doesn't this thing exist already with a certain incredulity in your voice? That's a home run for me to start. In fact, let's end the show. We're not doing any more. We're done. Why why can I promise you I'm not doing any better than this? We'll just do two more ad spots and be out because this is what happens (laughs) when you start with your strongest player. Well, okay. Now everyone knows they can all relax and I can relax. And by all, I mean, I can relax. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's go with one that's, that's sort of, re- it's it's kind of on the movie tip again. So you and I have talked about this a million times. I don't know if I've ever said this out loud, but I'm going to say it now. I hate every bestseller list that's available to me. There's not <laughs> one I like. Well, none of them is really complete. And you don't exactly know right. what it takes to be a bestseller. The New York yeah. Times, we didn't talk about on the main show, or we are the... The, the, regu- the Sunday night show, the new yeah. show, that New York Times expanding its bestseller list again or going back to where it was with comics and some other things. The New York Times methodology is sort of famously and usefully opaque. There's BookScan, which is print and not all venues. And as we know, like eBooks and audiobooks are a big deal. Then you could go to Amazon's bestsellers section, which also has its own problems. There's nowhere to go. So one thing you have to take with a grain of salt of this particular half-baked idea is probably it couldn't happen, but let's say we could make it happen, right? Mm -hmm. What if instead of going by bestseller list, we went by, like movies do, total dollars in sales Mm. just by a list? How many dollars? lifetime sales numbers? Yes. This week and then total, right? Because the the Uh way it gets broken down in the movies is, you know, this this week's number and then lifetime um, revenue. And so one problem that some... um, of the bestseller list have like the Amazon one, especially and I think the New York times bestseller one has this problem too. Cause they have eBooks on it. If it gets discounted to one ninety nine, Okay. It's going to sell 10 more, 10 times as many copies as a fourteen ninety nine one. But does that tell us what we want to know? And I think the thing I want to know that none of the bestseller lists tell me now is how, how is this title participating in the, actually, the publishing ecosystem? How, mm-hmm. how much juice um, is it? I don't know, uh, flowing? That's not, How much juice <laughs> is it providing to the larger <laughs> ecosystem here? And I think I'd prefer that versus any other bestseller list that's currently available to me. What do you think of that half-baked idea? I would, I would like that. I think, well, now my brain is, like all my dopamine is firing about like what other data mm. do I want for a useful bestseller list? Sure, you could list. give that to me too. Yeah, I'll bake so, that bread. Right, yeah. okay, yeah. So um, this week sales, lifetime sales, and then I would want to know like how many weeks has it been out? Because um, I think mm. sometimes the movie theater does that, like the movie data will do that. So how many weeks has it been out? Um, yep. If it's transitioned from hardcover to paperback, like how many weeks was it in hardcover? Because that's useful information. Like th- it stays in hardcover longer if it's giving more juice to the publishing ecosystem. And then maybe right. like an, an asterisk next to anything that got dropped to one ninety nine on ebook or that had like a major ebook discount that could have contributed to the um right contributed to the to how appealing it was 
to readers, some way to mm-hmm. control for the influence that a deep sale has on ebook or on book purchasing in general. But ebooks are such a part of it. Yeah, and it would have to include magically, this would have to include data about all formats from, yes, right. from all vendors. Yeah, so we're taking it as the thing. This is the dream, right? Um, but yeah, I, I think right. that would be useful. Um, like in my bookseller days, I had I remember like one or two interactions with people who were shopping for their parents and they were being like, well, he just wants to read something that says New York Times bestseller on the cover and being like, that yeah. ma'am, that doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> like anything can become a New York Times bestseller, basically. Sorry, like we need more information than that about what your dad is going to enjoy reading. Um, but yeah, I would love that. And I think it would be useful. Like this case, this has only been out for two weeks and it's sold this many dollars um, would be right. fascinating. Yeah. It would I'm control it. for a couple of things. I like your idea of the the control group of like if it's been ebook or deep discounted i think um i'm weirdly interested in movie box office results so i every week and i look at boxofficemojo.com which breaks down for you and one note they have on there is the per screen average so that might be a way like you know so um if something's in really wide release it could make a whole bunch of money but the per screen average is relatively low where an art house film could have a very high screen average but only be like in four films and it you know you can t- you can sort of control for either knowing mm-hmm. which one is which in this place it could be the average unit price right if the average unit there price is four ninety nine mm-hmm. then you can infer that a lot of those are deeply discounted ebook I think it might also provide some insight onto audiobooks versus ebooks now that's one thing we've seen that you know there's a about the same number of Americans will read an ebook as will listen to an audiobook, mm-hmm. but the price difference can be wildly different. Um, yeah. An audiobook can be extremely expensive, and an ebook can be extremely cheap. Now you can get deals on audiobooks and so on and so forth. But I would guess the average sale price of an audiobook is meaningfully different than a print book or an ebook. So that might even reveal a little bit more of the story about how influential audiobooks now mm-hmm. are now because of just raw dollars um, coming yeah. into the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the format oh, okay. breakout you is like something that I want too. to see too. Yeah, I like that. That would be useful. Um, so side note, did you see that Tom Hanks narrated the new Ann Patchett? Maybe. I feel like I saw somebody anyway, talking about Tom Hanks narrating something, so it must have been that. Yeah. Again, I just want to put that on the board for how much do these people get paid? Because that's that's got to be multiple days of Tom Hanks. I don't know how much multiple... I don't. I don't get that. Uh, anyway, that's a that's a side note. Um, it's not a half bike. That's a different episode. Is things we wish we knew. I'm putting. Right. You know what? That's a good. That's a. That's more than a half baked idea. For an episode it is. That's a full baked episode for an idea. Burning questions yeah. to which we will never get answers. Okay, I'm also giving myself credit for making that a fully baked idea on the fly. So I'm, I'm marking. I'm so I'm three for three is what I have down on the scorecard here. Listen. All right, that was Great. a single to left field. Right. Sandbagging okay. here at the start. Yeah, that's right. Okay, where do I want to go next? Um, I'm not sure this one's a good idea, but I thought it was an interesting thought experiment. Have you heard of Cameo? Do you know mm, what I'm talking about? Maybe tell me what it is. So, oh wait, is this looked, the thing where celebrities of... will send you a video? Yes. Like, yes, 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 I have heard of this. So you pay like so, twenty bucks mm-hmm. for that guy from the Wire to send you a personal Instagram video or something. Right, and I I didn't even look at it that much. All I know is you can pay some amount of money and they'll do a short message through video and it's low quality. And it's like, I don't know. They're not B list. Most of the availability is C D E list, whatever. Okay. Interesting idea. The technology's there, the payments there cameo for authors where you could have a favorite author for X amount of money that they set, write you a birthday greeting or, you know, just some kind of little prose that's unique to you. It's handwritten or something else, but big, it's not, it's not paid. so it's like taking the idea of Patreon of direct support, but also you get a little personalized something, and it's a premium price. Maybe it's fifty bucks, maybe it's a hundred bucks, maybe it's um, again. You're not going to get Stephen King, I wouldn't think, but for those of us who are book nerds or have book nerds in our life, you know, I wonder if we could get. I'm trying to think as, as an example, like who's someone with, you know, Erin Morgenstern. Could I get her to write two hundred words for Michelle for two hundred bucks? about something that's a keepsake kind of a thing. Hmm. Uh, that, that's as far as I've got. What do, you, what do you think of Cameo for authors? 
Well, I don't think you're going to get Aaron Morgenstern on there because I think that what you're Bad getting... Bad example. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. What you're getting on Cameo is folks who still need the like incremental income of a $200 yeah. hit. But the good news for you for this idea is that many, many <laughs> more published, like a much higher percentage of published authors still need this help than... Right. percentage of like Hollywood famous people. Just the amount of money you're making mm. for being on any TV episode is bigger than the amount you're making for like your average literary fiction middleist, whatever. Um, and we were just talking on Slack about how still like most writers have day jobs. Um, so if I'm a middleist, whoever, with a couple of novels out, and I could supplement my income by like 20 grand per year, by doing a hundred of these, <laughs> or I would, right. I would do them. I th- so I think you could get like solid midlist authors that people have attachment to. I don't know how many sales per author you would get. Yeah, but that's also not your problem if you're running Cameo. Like you just want the to- the overall volume, and you could get a volume of available people. I think to probably sign up, and if they had good like newsletters mm. or social network followings or whatever. It, it, I think they would I think the authors would sign up for it I think I am a terrible yeah. person to ask about like how what conversion rates for this would be like because like <laughs> I just don't care and I don't care about this we, we yeah this we this care. stuff does not yeah. work on me like short of Toni Morrison or mm-hmm. Marilyn Rob- get right now. right <laughs> right Toni Morrison yeah. is resurrected mm-hmm. um or Marilyn Robinson like sending me a birthday video, there's just not much I would care about. Um, Mary Oliver comes back from the dead. (laughs) What about um, uh, Mary Doria Russell? Are you interested? No, I'm not spending money on that. What about Terry Tempest Williams? What about as a gift? Because that's the other thing. I think some Mm. of this, I've seen a couple people in my social feeds give it to someone as a gift. I know you like X, so here is an interesting, fun gift. I think it is a better gift than I'm going to have... N.K. Jemison write me a birthday card for myself. Like that's kind so, of like okay. So let's. Somehow. Is Patrick O'Brien still alive? I don't know the answer to this question. Oh, tall ships, Bobby. Yeah, right. So Bob loves his tall there ships. Loves him some Patrick O'Brien. I and is he's notoriously hard to shop for. So I would spend probably fifty bucks on like there a, you go. just for the sake of novelty on that for Bob. Right, it's a good story. Right, it's a good story. Um. That's probably the only example in my... So, like, I have one use case that I can think of. Um, and I'm surrounded right. okay. by people who love books. So I think this is mm. underbaked, but it's not awful. Right. If Cameo already exists, it wouldn't be hard for them to add an author tab. Like, they sure. don't have to build a new business necessarily around it. So maybe maybe half-baked is good enough um, if they've already got the irons, fire, the irons um mm-hmm fired up let's do one more before we take another break Hmm. what's a good i don't i don't have a good follow-up for that okay let's do this so i think on this episode no an an upcoming episode we have um hmh sponsoring for the audio version of best american short stories i've Mm -hmm. always liked the series i don't read them every year and i don't read each like i'll pick up the food ones Sometimes the travel one, the short story. I like that they exist. I think it's a great idea, and it's proven to be a good idea because people buy them, and I see them out. It's continuing to go. Made me think, though. One podcasts and audiobooks are such a thing now that I wonder if there's room for a, an audio version that's best American audio, where one chapter is a really great podcast episode, and one chapter is a really good section of an audio book. Maybe one section's a really good interview segment from somewhere. But basically, you know, it's a best American audio series that you buy as an audiobook. That's all I got. That's as far mm. as I got. What do you think about that one? I would subscribe to that podcast, but I wouldn't buy that audiobook. Okay. Tell because me why. because a podcast I'm assuming would be free but ad supported and I could look at all of the episodes and be like oh, I do want to listen. I'm interested enough in this essay about whatever to listen to it, but I don't care about this next thing. Like this is, I also love the Best American series and I'm in the middle of Best Mm -hmm. American food writing right now. And I love that it gives you like, I find writers every year that I didn't know that I would enjoy. And then I go down the internet rabbit hole reading everything they've written. And I also end up reading about topics that I'm 
that I probably that like wouldn't have found their way to me on the internet. Like there was a great story in last year's Best American Food Writing about how the NBA players became obsessed with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And like I would have clicked yes, that. I saw that. It's so good, by the way. But like if that link had made its way to me, I would have clicked on it. It just didn't make its way to me. So the book last year gave me exposure to that story. Um, and that's what mm. I want is like the ability to like opt into something that's interesting and be like, oh, this just wouldn't have made its way to me. So I would have, I would listen to the podcast. I think I would even dip into episodes that I'm not sure I'd be interested about, interested in. But unless I like really trusted the curation source or if it was around some kind of theme, I might be willing to spend money on it. Like mm. I would, I would maybe buy the audio book of like best American audio about pop culture, you know? Um, okay. But the broad just these are the best things in audio it feels too broad to me to like invest dollars in right i guess the hmh series there's not best american writing like it breaks it down at least to Mm -hmm. short stories so maybe if there's a couple that maybe how about this a best american interviews like audio what could be one Mm -hmm. best american investigative audio or something like you know that's kind of uh sure or like sort of yeah best american yeah and like certainly somebody could do like best american true crime episodes and or like an audio book sure that would do gangbusters i think um it's interesting it's interesting okay so maybe right at half baked. It's maybe so. It's like that cookie is still gooey in the middle, but it's not bad. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I agree with you about what's nice about this this the books that exist. You know that you trust the curation because over time you know it's good. They get interesting editors. Like I feel like if Ira Glass was the editor of Best American Audio, that would be. An, I think I would just sign up for that. Mm. Just in general, I think I would sign up or. Um, Alex Bloomberg or um, uh, Linda Holmes over at Pop Culture. How, is it Linda Holmes? I can't remember her. I think it's Linda Holmes. Yeah. Um, there's or Roxanne Gay, someone who's into culture writ large. I think if the curator is right, and I kind of understood what I was getting to, but I, I didn't think about that note of maybe I need to go one more level of segmentation. Like there's an audio group of Best American, but then there's the major categories of audio mm-hmm. or subject matter or something. Yeah, like and that. you I get the interesting too. I think I would. I would be more likely to buy the audiobook of this if I got also the curator's insight into how the pieces oh, got I like there. That. Like all the best American books come with that year's guest editor writing an introduction about like what they're thinking about. So this year's best American food writing that I'm currently working through is edited by Samin Nosrat and she opens I it saw up. That. It's so good, Jeff. She opens it up talking about like that salt fat acid heat is one of only two general cooking cookbooks by people of color that have gone mainstream and like what this represents about how people about really how people from any marginalized community are just super underrepresented in the way that we talk about food and eating and in the writing we have about food and eating but everybody eats and most everybody cooks so she goes into this curation caring about representing a bunch of different kinds of voices and that comes through in the pieces and you get like a few sentences in the introduction about each piece like I always wish they were longer like I would read you know a two paragraph introduction to each essay by the editor um, or like Roxane Gay, to take your example, like if Roxane Gay comes on for two minutes talking about why she thinks this episode of whatever um, is Uh, one of the examples of best American audio for culture, I'm in. But it would need it just would need like an extra layer of something, I think. Yeah, one more one more level of curation or one more level of specificity or an additional layer. A little more spit shine. A little more spit shine. I can get behind that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. I'm cool. into it. All right. Well, it's not nothing, but we'll we'll continue on. But let's let's take a break first. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. 
to get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Okay. Um, I guess th- there's a thread of something you you pulled on that I'm going to unravel with my next one here. So again, um, I was in Powell's. Very fruitful Powell's visit, I guess, apparently the other day. Um, and I was, you know, I was, I was kind of going between fiction and nonfiction or yeah, fiction or the literature and fiction section and the nonfiction section. And it occurred to me, I was looking for something at TMI. You don't want to know about the nonfiction, but I was looking for a particular <laughs> book, but then the way nonfiction is generally categorized at a bookstore, the books around the book you're looking for are also kind of interesting to you that moment too, right? Like, oh, I, I want to mm-hmm. look at something about uh, crafts and knitting and here's some other ones about and I'm I'm here and outside of breaking it down by like mystery thriller young adult or science fiction fantasy the literature and fiction section in most big bookstores is an undifferentiated mass of prose so here's my idea as we've gotten away from needing to just you know basically those stacks being repositories where you go sort of search by title and you need to pull it out you can do that online Let's recategorize the literature and fiction, make it browsable by subject or theme or topic. So if I'm looking for Carl Marlantes, it's in the war writing section, books about war. Yep. I don't need to see the, the next MA title. That's not interesting to me just because it's next to, but another book about war next to Matterhorn might be interesting. Or I was looking for All Quiet on the Western Front by Marquez, and Matterhorn is right there by Marlantes. Boom. I've discovered something orthogonal to what I'm interested. You could do it for, you know, relationships, love stories, mm-hmm. historical fiction. You know, make the browsing experience of the literature infection section more like sort of topic, style, uh, theme, affinity. What do you think about that idea? I like this. And I've seen some used bookstores that do this. I've been in one that like their fiction section was organized by like, you know, adventures in space and detective stories and things with creepy crawlies. And I thought that was incredibly useful. Yes. Because that's like, that is the experience that I love about browsing nonfiction is like I'm standing in the well, this is a personal example, but I was standing in the nature section of I can't remember the name of the bookstore off the top of my head in Manchester, New Hampshire last year. And I was looking at nature writing and I picked up one book about moss. And then I ended up also buying a book about snails. <laughs> but like, I'm not That's walking right. into that store shelve, looking for a book about do, snails. You got sh- to shelve moss and snails <laughs> right next to it. No, no reason to separate them alphabetically. It just struck me that it seemed like lost opportunity. And if the idea is to make the browsing part fun, there's nothing less fun in a bookstore than just wandering the literature and fiction shelves by name because you don't know what half the stuff is about. You got to pull it off the shelves and so on and so forth. The thing you would take away, I guess, if you're looking for the specific author, you know right where to go. But sometimes I'm not even sure if it's going to be in literature and fiction versus horror, thriller, or crime or whatever anyway, unless it's very much a literary, unless, you know, I'm looking for John Updike or something like that. Yeah. Haven't done since, you know, the and early it, 90s, but. And you could have your broad, like, lit, general lit fic or, like, canonical fiction 
section for your John Updikes and your Philip Roths, or you could have a section that you called like middle-aged white guy problems that you put all of those in. I think think that's fun. And like, this is what booksellers exist for, is for you to be like, where do Mm -hmm. I find... Matterhorn by Carl Marlantes. And probably if that's what you're looking for, the bookseller is like, oh, that's in our collection of war fiction, or specifically Vietnam war fiction, then like you discover that right next to Matterhorn is the things we carried. And if somehow you have not read the things we carried, you walk out with that as well. Um, It's like it, it sort of does some of the hand selling for them, I think. I like this. Can you please hit me with an idea that you think is bad? I'm really dying here. Very curious. (laughs) <laughs> oh, this one I'm not sure about. I just it, it, this is more of a thought experiment. I, this is not. This is my least favorite and maybe most controversial one. Mm, okay. Um, so we've been talking about libraries a lot recently, and they're public goods. We pay taxes. We use them. How to in the you know for-profit companies supply libraries with the goods that compete with the goods they sell on the open market, which seems to me unusual. In public services, right? Um, so I was thinking, okay, so how does it, it just seemed to me to be strange. Is there any way to do this? And I was thinking about this, like my situation where I don't pay any more for library books than someone in a lower tax bracket, even though I am in a higher tax bracket, though I can use the library the same way. What if there was some sort of sliding scale for libraries? So keep basically keep for most people, it's, is, it is as is. Mm-hmm. But for people in higher tax brackets, you only get five free checkouts a month. And then every additional oh. one after that is a couple of bucks or something. Like, take my money. I've mm-hmm. got it. I'm using it. You know, like, you know, food stamps is kind of the other way or like supportive for Medicare. Like, we do things in public services to to um, subsidize people that have less than other people. Well, we do that for everyone with libraries. But what if instead we work kind of the other way where... If I'm, you know, one of the top 20% in taxpayers, that's a signal I've got a little bit more. Don't make me pay for everything or or maybe do it, but like some sort of sliding scale where more money gets put into the library by people who use it and have the most ability to further subsidize the library. Is that controversial? Do you see what I'm getting at with you? I don't know. It might be controversial. Well, you know, I'm enough of a commie that like I, it, it might like be controversial, <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I... I like it. And I think like some sort of tiered subscription thing would like a tiered subscription-esque model is what I would do there of like um, everybody below that high tax bracket gets unlimited access to the library for free. If you are in this high tax bracket, you get whatever you set like the this baseline. Here's what you get for free. Um, if you would like to have access to, you know, 10 holds per month or 10 checkouts per month, that's Mm -hmm. this fee. And then up to 20 would be this other tier. And you could, you could go up and you could even do some premium. Like if you want unlimited, here's what it is. And you price that in a way that doesn't make it super scary. Cause I think this is the ideal thing is for the people at the high tax bracket to pay to get the same unlimited access that people who can't afford, um, and and who shouldn't have to pay extra um, can get like you pay for the same amount of access, but you pay a premium for it based on your tax bracket and you're supporting the library being able to continue offering all kinds of social services like I, I like this. Um, or maybe it's just an in between right. of like unlimited is X. And if you would prefer to pay extra per rental above the baseline, then you can pay per rental. And then you could really choice architecture people into just taking that unlimited because it's not that bad. Hi, Clint. Choice architecture. (laughs) Choice architecture. Yeah, I mean, the thing I I really wouldn't want is for, like, if you've paid to have a special green card. Even if you have... I don't want any differentiation Mm -hmm. between the users anyone could tell. I don't want any... I don't think... I also don't want to be able to pay for extra privileges. I'm saying take my existing privileges privileges and meter me some somehow yes. different. Maybe it's as simple as if you were in this tax bracket, you've got to pay 50 bucks a year for your library card. Maybe that's the simplest way to maybe, go. Yeah, maybe you so. Because that's, fu- right, that's functionally unlimited, but for a fee. And right. Yes. And I think that's great because what you also want to do is price it in a way that is still a better deal than what 
those people would get if they just went and bought everything else that they read beyond the totally. baseline online totally. from yeah. anywhere else because you want that money to go mm-hmm. into the library system. Um, like, frankly, I don't use my public library that much, but I would like I am also in that situation where I would be happy to like just to have my library card every year. I'd be happy to pay an extra 50 bucks um, and to know that it yeah. is going somewhere good. Um I'm curious about what our readers think or what our listeners think about this. Like it would probably be controversial to roll out, but I also um, think that people in higher tax brackets who use their libraries a lot might be likely to support it or to be okay with it. Right. Um, This makes sense to me. And now I'm thinking about like, what else could we do this to? (laughs) (laughs) The closest analog I could think of. And again, I have kids in school, so it's, it's availability bias, but like, there, you can buy hot lunch, but there's also free and reduced lunches. Yeah. Right? Depending on your income, do something like that for libraries. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, if you're a librarian, I know we have a bunch of librarians out there. I'd love to hear there's probably something we're not thinking about, some some unintended consequences. I'm sure there is. But I, I'd really love to know what a librarian would think uh, of something like this. Now, I know there are friends of the library programs out there where you join, there's a membership. So there, there's already a mechanism to you can and you can also always make a donation. Like at this, mm-hmm. I'm not really saying like those things already exist. I'm guessing reframing the expectation that you pay directly to libraries, but not everyone can afford it. Like free or reduced school lunches, and to say that's fine to mm-hmm. to destigmatize it if you can. Like I know Head Start has been one of the most beneficial programs in American sort of social history. Um, I think with libraries, we just went for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that's the best use of funds or it doesn't, doesn't sort of reflect who should be subsidizing in one particular way. So th- that's that's my idea. For, yeah, for I like that. Well, and there is like to take the school lunch example, I think when when kids can tell who's getting free or reduced lunches, there is stigma against that. So the way to change that would be that school lunch is free for everyone, unless you're in the top 20%, in which case your, your school lunch is like you pay for it. And that continues to subsidize the program. Like, I think that could exist. I wonder if it's as simple as like at a certain tax bracket, your taxes increase by 50 bucks per year. And that 50 bucks goes to the library um, rather than like the library charging you for your library card. But I, I support this concept. Yeah, I guess the other thing I like, and, and that you can always raise taxes too. I was guess I was more thinking the people most willing to subsidize the library with with expendable income are those that use the library. So like taxes are one thing, but this is like you're actually in the library, you use it. 50 bucks a year is a hell of a deal still, and it's just additional income um, mm-hmm. for the library. Okay, so I uh, that's interesting. I, I especially, I would, look, I would like to hear feedback on all of these, but that's one where I was especially like, it's like a social policy. It's not just some dumb thing yeah. to think about movie theaters and selling Joker trade paperbacks or something else like that. Um, I'm almost out. I only think I have, <laughs> well, really just one more. All right. Um, well, we're doing okay we're, on we're, time. We're coming up on 45. We're doing okay on time. So this is, we're in charge of the Nobel Prize. Oh. <laughs> we, the, the money. Okay. Okay. So I'm sure if I'd given you homework for this one, you'd have a different model from me. But I say, what about this? I break up the Nobel, and here's what I do. I take the money, and I split it up. There is mm-hmm. one Lifetime Achievement Award every year, right? Yes. There's one, much like there is now. I'm not really getting into the judging. and not, We've talked about that before. So like, there's one. You have one to give. You can figure out the judging later. I'm not that interested now. But the other, so that's a third. Another third goes to an emerging author, so an early career author. I don't know, you know, use whatever rubric you want. Maybe more than one book, but maybe they're they're earlier in their career. However, you want to define it, one book, two book, kind of like the Mark MacArthur, maybe even a little earlier than that, where mm-hmm. you give someone a, a big chunk of money that's going to change their life, and ergo change their artistic output, and ergo change the sort of the literary landscape as it is. So that's an, and then the third third goes for a global read-along program where you pick one or two books Mm -hmm. and you say these are the two books they're not related to the other two authors so you're splitting around the wealth because these are good people are going to get a sales but these people might get the biggest sales bump actually and for the first six months of the year there's a read-along programming around this 
title, this author, the country they're from, the issues. Like you do a whole suite of programming. You make a podcast. You do a book club. You do supplemental materials. You do whatever it is. And then so there's a you know a winter read and a fall or whatever. There's two reads or one, but some kind of let's we're all in this together. We like books. Let's read this book, and we're gonna we're gonna seed some content out in the world at various levels around this book. And that's how I've redone the Nobel Prize mm. and what it's about. What, what do you think of those? Particular? So your part three, does that assume that that book then becomes, that author's books become available in translation globally? Maybe that's part of what you do. Maybe that's what part of the money is for, is to hire, to, to subsidize. If there's if there's not an English translation, you do that. If there's not a Chinese translation, you do mm-hmm. that. I mean, you pick, you pick some languages, you know, you probably have to do a little bit of... Um, uh, cost-benefit analysis about what languages do, but you try to make it broadly available. Maybe you make a deal with a publisher to make it because you have a rights problem. Maybe you you know you get involved in making available just to buy outright from mm-hmm. a whole bunch of places. But you become you know a, a, a clearinghouse to get people to to talk about a book, and part of that is making it available. Yeah. Okay. What do I'm you think? I am doing something different, but I don't hate this idea. You don't um, hate that. Okay. I don't hate that idea. I think I'm, I take the money and I don't do one declaration of this is the book or this is the author. I think I would divide the world into regions somehow. Yeah. Um, maybe English speaking and then other dominant languages. And each region would have its committee that would have to nominate like okay. two to three authors or two to three books that fulfill whatever our grand Nobel's mission statement is. And that committee, like the heads of each committee then come together for the global Nobel where they're like, these are the three English speaking writers that we nominate. And these are the three, um, these are the three three writers in Spanish. And these are the three from um, China, Japan. Here's a writer from India. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just sort of broadly, here are our East European writers and our Western European writers or whatever. Um, Like you figure this out, not just based on language, but sort of like cultural um, groupings is how I would do it. I think first you're doing some major studying and they all read, like everyone at that top committee is reading all the nominees from like the top three from every place. So everybody's reading say like 15 books. And then they come out with the list of like, and here is the book this year from English speaking world. Here is the book from the Spanish speaking world. Here is the book from um, Eastern Europe. Here is the book from China, Japan. Here is the book from yeah, India. From East Asia. Right, India, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Pacific, and this like also that. assumes that everybody is getting translated in all the languages. But for right. a real, <laughs> for a real, like what we're trying to do here is, um, read book like is uh, give readers access and awareness of writers that are doing important work around the world um, and instead of trying to pick one person to speak for everyone like here is what we think is the most important voice this year from each place mm-hmm. and then you do you could do a whole project around that like you could build a reading challenge around read like read one book from each of these authors um and get your global worldview like that that's one of the things that really or maybe it's the thing that really feels irrelevant to me about the nobel is the idea that like any one writer could be relevant and important to the vast majority of readers um because the world is so like the world is so connected now it is so flat thanks to the internet that like what sh- like what sh- I genuinely want to know like what should I read from mm-hmm. India what should I read from China who's writing in Africa that would give me a greater sense of what life in those places is like right now and the political issues and how they tie into global culture um, so that's what I would do I think I mentioned this this is another it's a another half-baked idea related to Nobel but I think I've talked about it before differently where I think it would be cool if it was a little like the Olympics in this regard, which is you knew in any given year that the next year's prize was going to be from a South American author. And like the prize mm. like, is going to be, and then two years it's going to be from Asia Pacific and three years it's going to be um, from, from Europe. And then the year after that's going to be from Africa because then you have a whole anticipation cycle where the country's going to be wondering like who is it going to be and and the year before you could do programming the the whole country the whole the country the whole area will be sort of energized because like this is we know this year Mm -hmm. it's one of it's an author from 
this part of the world, whereas kind of what happens now is some people are interested in, then it's some Austrian Austrian playwright and like, okay, we're moving on. And they open the, like, some of it, some of it is so weird now. Like, they open the door, <laughs> they say the name, they close the door, they have no ceremony, and that's all they do. And then mm-hmm. I think we're both sort of saying there's, a, there's an opportunity to sort of open up and be a locus of yeah, conversation and discourse rather than just sort of like, here's your plaque and cash and let's go have fancy right. fish like it, in, it should, in uh, Northern Europe for a day. It should energize something. And it right. doesn't, I don't think it really energizes anything in reading culture right now. It might boost nope. sales for like two weeks, maybe. Um, but right it now should it feels be... like you're putting a picture on the wall of a museum. Yeah, yeah. That's how yeah. alive it feels right now. And there's just um, so much opportunity to make it interesting and innervating and yeah cool. yes mm-hmm. well i'm energized rebecca i'm juiced up thank you so You're much just... for playing my game of half-baked ideas are you just so happy that nothing was awful <laughs> I, I i left some off <laughs> but i didn't know i didn't know if i didn't know how well my spectrometer was um tuned because if if you if from the big if the top you're like you know I don't think books to, books and movie theaters and mm. sales I, you know I think that's boring and no one's gonna I was gonna be like okay this is just forty minutes of sad trombones in prose um, coming up here <laughs> well, but I, that that's good yeah you do know your audience of one woman here pretty well so it'll be <laughs> <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what the listeners think about all these ideas yes um, this was fun I'm glad that I didn't know about it ahead of time. Okay, good. Well, then the last question is, is this episode a half-baked idea? Or was this episode a fully baked idea? That's that's the meta question. Mm, I think that is up to the listeners. I had a great time. But you and I do this on the phone like three times a week. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. I, I was like, well, I could do this every now and again. Uh, you know, I can't. I have to have to wait a while before having. But I realized that this this list took me like thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Like thirty. I was like, I had one idea. I started out with the. Um, weirdly, I started out with the organized fiction and literature by subject. I think that got me thinking about. I wonder if that's an episode, or I was like, well, what if I just collect? And then when I said, okay, I'm going to sit down, and I came up with those seven in like a half hour. So I think we could oh. do one of these. Maybe we'll come. We'll come back around again. Yeah. If you have I a feel- half baked idea that you'd be willing to. Seed to us for discussion. We'll give you credit. Think about Ooh, it. Podcast yeah. at I like that. And so, we can each keep our private documents now of uh, half-baked ideas to pitch each other. Well, that's what I was going to say. The, uh, the, I, I've served a half volley into your side of the court, mm-hmm. so you got to start thinking. I'm thinking about list. it. Rebecca, this is fun. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks.